0: meghan mccain has entered the chat hello hello welcome back to meghan mccain has entered the chat uh we have a very fun show for you coming up we have our friend jen hoffman uh old friend of ours from the america nowadays she is a writer reporter and media commentator Uh, And just like all around interesting person. Um, And we have my friend Tim Carney, who's a fellow at AEI. And he has this new book called Family Unfriendly, How Our Culture Made Raising Kids Much Harder Than It Needs to Be. Very interesting uh, book with lots of data about just basically why it's so hard to have kids right now and how America is just completely eating it uh, when it comes to supporting parents, Miranda, nice to see you. Your children are sick. Hello, Cece, sitting right there in front of the camera. Uh, I'm glad you could still make it
1: I here with a toddler on my lap as I'm recording this with you.
0: Yes. Hi, little lady. Hello. Um, but I, uh, I'm excited about the show. We just recorded it. Uh, I it's great. I'm very happy for these guests. And uh yeah, Mitch McConnell uh announced he was stepping down right before our show started and you and I are like, Age limits, age
1: limits I got the alert on my phone, I'm like yeah, where was this? note? is this a year old
0: notification? Totally. Like, now getting this. Where- totally, and I just again it goes into this, the one of the more constant topics that we have about how uh, the octogenarian class is just decaying in front of us, and I know people think that sounds mean, but that's the case. Hello little lady uh, There's We've got sick kids everywhere uh, It's totally fine um, This is a family friendly show And uh, yeah well, I guess we should just get started But um, we have a Super Tuesday Coming up next week Right next week I think so. Yeah. Yes, I mean, we'll check the calendar. Who knows? Looking forward to that, and um, just doesn't continue. Matter. It's going to be Trump Biden. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I was like, and con- <laughs> continuing the slog of the purgatory election between Trump and Biden. We are stuck here forever, and all all of us are here uh, trying to sift through <laughs> the worst election of my lifetime. Uh, with that, kids, <laughs> let's get the show started. <laughs> On a happy note, let's talk about other stuff. Yeah. Yes. welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat work here with uh one of our like old school uh guests who used to be on my radio show uh Miranda was like oh my gosh we should have Jen back on again and I was like of course I love her Jen Hoffman is a writer reporter and media commentator for outlets like the New York Post Vice The Daily Beast Cosmopolitan Marie Claire and more her Instagram is at Jen Hoffman hi uh, first of all Jen it's just a pleasure to see your face again thank you so much for coming on
1: Thanks for having me. It's good to see you too, to talk to you too. It's been a while. Yes.
0: Yeah, so can I first say, I was looking at your social media last night. You're still in New York, which yeah. kind of surprised me. I know you're born and raised in New York, but uh, you have a, a little girl, you have a seven-year-old, Beatrice. Um, did you ever consider leaving the city? I don't know that many ha- people still left there.
1: I have considered it. I mean, first, there's the question of, like, where to go. Sure. Um, Second, there's um, her father has also entered the chat again. So, um, and he lives here. So, um, you know, he now sees her and has her part time and he lives in New York City. So that makes it not really possible to leave New York City. I mean, I guess I can go to, like, Long Island, which is where I was born and raised, and, like, I don't really want to do that, or, like, Westchester or somewhere like that, but right now the city is the easiest for us to, you know, co-parent her together, and um, I don't – I think the city is not as bad as a lot of people think, but, you know, for me, I – could live other places, too.
0: Mm -hmm. I just thought it was interesting. I was like, oh, wow, like you're still in in New York, but that all makes sense. Um, You wrote this article. I want to talk about this first for the New York Post. Um, It's a really hard article to read, and it's a series of articles, I guess, um, that is about this woman, Catherine Kasanoff, that's how I say her last name, is that correct? Yes. Um, Who underwent assisted suicide in Switzerland um, because uh, in a Facebook book, excuse me, a Facebook post she said because of a quote prolonged separation from my children. She also did have cancer so that is worth noting but this story in this series of stories is just very, very intense. Uh, how did you even find this woman? How did you end up reporting on it? Um, and can you just tell me about like the, the impact? Because uh, this story uh, about her and the broken family court system really is just exploded.
1: Sure. So I found the story because I went through a lot of my own family court issues and people who I know and people in like the legal community know a lot about. Um, essentially, my daughter is seven. I've had seven years of family court. Um, So when the story was referred to me, it was just the Facebook post itself was forwarded to me of her suicide note. So I immediately pitched uh, my editor at New York Post and said, this is a really big deal. I mean, this woman, even though she's been diagnosed with cancer, I mean, she could – live for a while she could see her kids until she dies but they have said she can't even see them they've limited contact from her they've just got her from every angle from the judges from the attorneys from a financial standpoint from custody evaluators they've just seemingly surrounded her and made her quality of life zero i mean if someone said you can never see your daughter again and i was dying of cancer i would be like okay i'm good with going today so um It was very hard to read, and it was also very understandable because I can't imagine being told um, you could potentially be at the end of your life and you can't even see your child due to these totally random, unevidence, I mean zero evidence of anything that she had done wrong, reasons against her. Um, It's really an issue of, especially in wealthy areas, Um, And I've been doing more reporting on family courts, areas like Westchester, certain multi parts of Connecticut, other parts of New York, um, and all over the country. But that's, I focus on this New York and kind of Connecticut area that the moneyed party, whoever does the money grab and gets really really good attorneys, tends to win. And um, Catherine Kasanov was a former attorney herself. I mean, she was a federal prosecutor. She's faced the hardest criminals in her life. She's a fierce, was a fierce, fierce woman. And, you know, says the family court eventually killed her. And I can say from seven years of family court, I don't understand how it doesn't nearly kill almost everyone who goes through it.
0: So I watched this uh, and just bear with me on this, this Lifetime movie about this woman who uh, shot and killed her husband and her uh, his wife, Betty. uh Back now. I'm going to say the wrong name, wrong. But I thought of that that story when I saw this because I think the the, the Broderick. Broderick, yes, thank you, Betty Broderick, thank you, Miranda, John, Betty Broderick, whatever. And it's a extreme case, and obviously we can't be murdering people but when you watch the movie and read about it you really see her she was married to a very wealthy man in southern california and he called like every lawyer originally so she couldn't uh, get any good lawyers he has all this money she has no money she was always at home taking care of their children and by the end of it you have some empathy for her because she just got so royally screwed in so many different ways in this situation with Catherine. Um, what was the reasoning that was given for taking, cause having your children taken away, especially from a mother, is very extreme. There, it's not
1: extreme, actually. It is extreme, but it's not extreme in family courts. It happens all the time. It can happen without a trial. It can happen without any evidence. It can happen just because somebody says, I have some concerns. That could be from the father coming in with accusations. Um, This is the first thing people need to realize. And when I've talked to people about my own experiences with family court and then started to describe other stories and other things, you know, that I'm researching and reporting on, people say that can't be. That violates human rights, civil rights. That's not due process. There is not really due process in family court. This is something I want people to listen to very carefully. Family court is not criminal court. Family court is not even traffic ticket court. Family court is more of the Wild West, where judges and other people can make decisions based on frameworks and laws, but without the same amount of evidence. There's something called the preponderance of evidence, where in New York, it's just a little bit over 50%. So if something could be 51% believable, then they can believe it. You don't have to prove something beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's also a lot of issues with um, one issue in particular is that there are custody evaluators and psych evaluators and a lot of money that goes into these things. There's kind of two different, maybe even three different family courts in America. There's the moneyed Party family courts where you'd think where people would fare better because people have money, which actually can turn out to be much more tragic. And then let's just for now keep it to, like, poorer areas where there's not a lot of money. In areas with less wealth, there's a lot more ACS involvement or CPS. Um, so they could just take kids away, like you see in the Netflix drama, you know, Take Care of Maya, with little reason, little evidence, and put a family through hell. And it's not that every ACS worker or CPS worker is like that. They also do a lot of good hard work and are very under-resourced. But that's the case in those types of situations. And in wealthier areas, you'll have somebody who kind of seizes all the wealth. Like in Catherine Kathanoff's case, um, she had been high-paid. He was a high-paid attorney. She was a high-paid attorney. But then she decided to be a stay-at-home mom for a while. So the custody comes first. So they work out the money later. So they'll give a little bit of maternal support to the mom but it's or spousal support if it's a divorce or if they're never married, just some sort of support towards the mother. But it goes nowhere near the assets that one party will have. And the reason why I'm saying the mother is because I've spoken with fathers, too, that have gone through this, where they've been the person to lose the child with no evidence. But for the purposes of this, and because we're talking about Catherine, I'll stick to moms because it tends to happen where the mom will give up the more... Um, high-powered career or give up her career to raise the child when there's not the need for both people working. If it's a high-income family, if the mother doesn't need to work or wants to stay on with her child, she has that luxury that a lot of people don't have, but it's a double-edged sword because then this father can have access to incredible amounts of worth. I mean, in Kastanov's case, he was spending millions of dollars on attorneys, doing similar types of things, were preventing her from seeing other types of attorneys and getting access to money. Then hiring custody evaluators and psychologists, he was paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to say she's crazy, where she had no history of any mental health problems. She had no history of addiction. She had own, her own private psychiatrist, tons of them. Coming in, she said she would voluntarily have um, random psychiatrists come in and evaluate her. And they were saying nothing but one custody evaluator who was heavily tied into this community, who she actually successfully had depaneled from being able to be a custody evaluator, She successfully had him removed as a mental health professional recognized by the courts because um, of misconduct and, and all these other allegations against him that proved to be true. He just said, oh, I think she has an unspecified personality disorder, so she'd be a danger to her children, so she should stay away from them. That's
0: all it took. What is the reaction from people who have read your pieces on this case, Ben? Because like I said, it it's a very, very tragic, sad story.
1: So there were some people that were saying she must have done something. You know, you don't just lose your kids. And I'm like, that is um, not true. You don't have to have mu- have, to have done anything. But I received so many emails, so many DMs, just an overwhelming. And when I say, you know, like dozens and dozens to the point where like once I reached like a 100 messages, I had to just kind of tune out from people saying, please help me. I'm in the same situation, and not from all over the country. I mean, I did receive them from all over the country, but when I'm saying getting close to 100, I'm saying just from New York and Connecticut and New Jersey area, from nearby. And these are people desperate, saying, I've lost my kids. I can't even see them, or I can only see them supervised. And by the way, supervised visits for a low-income family, when when you claim zero income, are like $75 per hour. My God. And when you are a regular income family, 100 to 150, and if you're considered wealthy, it could be in the hundreds. So you can be paying thousands, hundreds to thousands, just to see your kids for a few hours a week.
0: So what needs to be done to be to reform some of this family court s- stuff? Because I, again, other than your articles and just like a few stories like this, I didn't know it was as like, you know, deeply I don't, know, I don't know if corrupt is the right word, but uh, it seems like at least illegal in some of the instances that, as comparison to other courts.
1: It's definitely dysfunctional and there definitely there is some corruption right now. I'm working on a story of straight corruption, straight money, corruption, that type of thing. Um, and the a lot of attorneys I've spoken to off the record and some willing to comment are saying there are certain areas where there is corruption and that they've been trying to say something or do something about it. Like high net worth attorneys that bill at 1500 an hour, that only take people that have millions, even billions of dollars, and they're saying that they can't even get around certain corruption. But let's set corruption aside and say that's only in certain sections or little pods as I've been sort of tracking them. Um, I'll break it down into two things. First, when we talk about what's the solution, when when people ask me, when I present a problem and and someone asks me what's the solution, I like to remind people that, let's say you're in an organization like that makes uh, video games or makes an app for an iPhone. There's all different people in the organization. And people in the organization, there's somebody who creates and envisions it. There's somebody who makes it. There's somebody who tests it for bugs and finds the problems there's somebody who, um, you know, then presents the problems and works out what they are and digs really deep into them. Then there's usually somebody else who solves the problems in conjunction with them. So the reason why I bring up the organizational format is because I hear a lot in news, or if I'll just talk about this in just general conversation over dinner, people say, what's the solution? And I remind people, that just because you've identified the problem or have even dug really deep into a problem, it doesn't mean that you'll be the person with the solution or have the solution. But I do think there are some. I think that there are ways to make sure that the money is um not such a centerpiece of all family court, that poor families being unable to, um whether it's have money, First of all, transcripts themselves. If you want a transcript of what happened in court, it's hundreds to thousands of dollars for one court date. So you can't even prove what was said in the last court date. Let's just start there. Think about that. If it costs hundreds to thousands to access a transcript, and it also take can take anywhere from like a week to a few weeks... Finding your burden of proof or finding your evidence or referencing what someone said on the record is incredibly different. So that's like a micro way to show the issues because even wealthy people or if you're once were a wealthy mother and now or father and now you don't have the money, you can't get that transcript. The second one is not necessarily to run it like criminal court because they're not trying to they're not trying to put somebody in jail Maybe for something that can be approved. Let's, let's say that there's a divorce issue or a custody issue. They're not going to say, well, you get, you get custody and you don't, you go to jail. So it can't be the same as a criminal court, but putting in some of the protections that are in place in criminal court, like Brady law. So there's something called the Brady law. Um, which is where if opposing counsel, this is usually for prosecutors in criminal court, if they find exonerating evidence, meaning something that proves that the person didn't do something, by law they have to present that to the court. You can't hide that. That doesn't exist in family court. So if the opposing counsel has proof that what they know they're saying and doing is not true, and not only not proof that what they're saying isn't true, they have exonerating evidence that proves what they're saying isn't true. They don't need to present it. Now, Brady has been challenged. I challenged it myself. I sued, um, in federal court. I sued the city of New York, um, like ACS, NYPD, just, um, and a third party, which I am not allowed to name, but I can say their behavioral health care center about this. And one of the topics was Brady and having Brady being introduced as part of the family court and it was allowed by the judge to be part of the lawsuit so that does set a precedent to bring it in but it's little things like that it's making the family court less of a wild west and i hate when people say let's bring awareness to something usually because usually bringing awareness to something like mental health we all know there's mental health issues more awareness doesn't necessarily help unless something was unknown But in family court, it truly is an unknown. And unless you've been through it, people do not know about it. They don't know about certain lack of regulations. And of course, there's case law that they follow and there's certain procedures that they follow. But I don't think people know how emotionally, financially, spiritually draining and chaotic family court is. I don't think they realize that family court dates can stretch from family courts are so overwhelmed in all areas that if you get a family court date set for like, let's say February right now, you might not be back in court for three to six more months simply because they can't get another date on the calendar. So let's say there was an emergency removal of your child for an accusation, not something proven, just an allegation. You may not be able to even see your child For three to six more months or get a supervisor to see your child or find a supervisor you can pay to see your child for that many more months so this ball just keeps getting kicked down the hallway for months to years and it drags out ultimately hurting the kids
0: yeah that's horrible i didn't i didn't know any of that and um are you gonna do any follow-ups on this story or is it is it kind of over yes uh,
1: right now everything with katherine kasanoff it seems like a done deal. Um, I was presented. I wasn't able to publish, but I was presented her death certificate. I'm not completely convinced she's dead. Oh, I mean, that's she, fascinating. Yeah, I'm not completely convinced. I'm, nothing is a hundred percent for me. I mean, I'll take the word of you know people in her state or attorneys or other people that think she is. And I obviously want to respect her peace if that's what she chose. I don't judge her at all she chose to die by assisted suicide i don't but there are certain things of interest like she was a dual citizen for canada and in canada it's free to die by assisted suicide yet she while bleeding money also chose switzerland where some people say there are different regulations and different things for reporting for it um, but it also could mean that she just chose to die somewhere in her note she wrote the idyllic area of switzerland it's a lot less clinical um you die in a place that is not in all cases but there are different situations where you can die in a much more um maybe peaceful place in a clinical setting in switzerland so she may have made that choice because of that but there are a few things that lead me to believe that she quite possibly did die by suicide but it's open-ended and If she were to resurface, I wouldn't be completely shocked, but I don't have any evidence or any proof to say that she's alive. I know there's people in Alan Kasanoff, her ex-husband's family, who believe she's alive and has pulled the wool over everyone's eyes just to ruin his life. And that could be true. That may not be true. I I don't know about that, but I am definitely interested in in investigating this more or any information about this
0: yeah and if you whatever follow-ups i hope that you'll come back on and talk about because it's just like a i mean it's like a twilight zone story i mean it's so sinister and scary and awful and sad and you just really feel bad for Catherine in so many different ways and if there's a potential she's still she isn't dead. I mean, that makes us even more,
1: but more no, I'll leave it at that she's dead, but there's always a possibility she's not. And the twilight zone situation of it is that it's not. It's that all these people that have reached out to me are in similar situations. And there are many other mothers who have committed suicide. God, Many, hundreds thousands i've been sent my friend is dead she killed herself this day this her life here are photos with her and her family she killed herself because of the family court and just i had to at some point and i'm so sorry to the people sending these to me but i had to stop reading them because i felt like i was going to have a nervous break sure. just reading about all the different people that have also you know just Decided to die because they couldn't be with their children. They loved so much.
0: You may want to, I'm sure someone has approached you about this, but explore maybe writing a book on this story about this larger, like this micro story of the macro issue, because it's really very compelling.
1: I've definitely thought about it. But that suggestion, um, even, you know, you expressing interest in it is definitely something that's a catalyst, because I know that you, you know, you have you're basically very much on the pulse of what's interesting and what matters and you know and you're a mom and you know to i feel like for parents forget just being a mom but parents to not know um how treacherous family court can be and just the ins and outs of it is something that people really should know about so you know i appreciate you saying that and, and even bringing that up for me and for others who've experienced it who may or may not want to write a book.
0: Or a documentary or whatever. I mean, just like, you know, a bigger project other. on it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I do want to pivot, if you don't mind, a little bit, sure. because um, we are, you know, I've talked to you in the past about politics before, and for people that maybe don't know, once upon a time, many, many moons ago, you were actually a contestant on the show The Apprentice, that our former president, presidential possible presidential nominee, most likely presidential nominee hosted. Um, I feel like back when we were um, doing my old radio show together you know trump running for president was like eh, kind of like comical and then it became more serious and then he actually won but i remember when i was first interviewing you about it um i didn't take it as seriously as it became what does it feel like for you to see him become the nominee again and you know face this this world where he could potentially become president again
1: Well, I took it very seriously then. I remember when... um,
0: You did. That's correct. Yes. yes, I
1: said he was going to win. You did. I I was 100% sure he was going to win. I had absolutely no doubt. down to all 50 states, I was like this. I said, Hillary has no path. And every time I would draw the map and I would look at voting trends and people's opinions, I was like, these polls are all, all wrong. And I was like, she has no path and she's actively ignoring her potential path. She had a potential path, but I think there was arrogance there and that she ignored it, and I think that they depended on him being a joke and it being this thing we didn't take seriously, um, and he was able to win not only because they depended on that but because he spoke to issues that people cared about, and he speaks to them in a very dramatic way. He's very in tune with the media. He knows what to say to push people's buttons. He knows what to get people going. He knows what to get people to go out there and vote. Maybe not even just for, but what to kind of polarize people against, uh, what to rattle people up against, what to upset people up against. And if we're looking at another Biden-Trump election, I, you know, look, this is an election of ifs. I took a lot of notes. And um, this is like an if he's able to run. If he can get on the ballot, if both of both he and Biden are still well enough to run, even though it's, you know, months away, not years away. If all these things continue, if RFK doesn't get on the ballot, which it looks like he's not going to really be able to get on the ballot in the states he needs, it's a big election of ifs. If Gen Z opts out of voting because gen z has been saying they want to opt out of voting because they don't like biden because he's not um he's not for not all of gen z i don't want to generalize but this is a large group of gen z is upset with him about things such as his stances on palestine they want him to be way more pro-palestine they want more um you know they want the affordable health care that he promised and didn't deliver on. There's so many things deliverables from Gen Z and maybe younger millennials that they're upset with about Biden. But the biggest thing, and I have it here, like in my my like manifesto uh-huh. like, scroll over notes. I know people can't see, but I'm holding it up so you can see, um, independence. So independence are really kind of what rules the world now. Um, There are more independents now than there ever have been before. There's more people that categorize themselves as independents. And Democrats have bled way more independents than Republicans have. Well, both parties have. Democrats have bled way more. And in 2020, Trump lost the independent vote by about 9 to 10%. That was the margin in 2020. Well, now if you have more independents and more independents that seem to not like Biden, and the independents are getting younger than ever, then you have more of a problem for Biden. So I think Trump needs to be taken more seriously than ever as the next president, as the next potential president, as, you know, if that's if he can get on the ballot, Mm -hmm. if he is going to be the nominee and the person who actually gets to run for president, I think the Democrats are in serious trouble.
0: I, I agree with you. Why do you think that, um, you know, there's so many people and media and, you know, p- politicians on, on the Democrat side that seem very uh, averse to even talking about the idea that Biden won't win? Like, it's just this completely foreign concept. And, you know, he's fine. And, you know, evil Trump, no matter what, no one will vote for him. And I I agree with you that I think there's a really big potential that President Trump could get elected again. Do you think it's just like... Keeping like your head in the ground is easier than facing reality. Why do you think so many people just refuse to see the reality of the situation like you do? Well,
1: there's a few things. One thing is that they're making the same mistakes they did with the election in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. They're not paying attention to warning signs. They're not paying attention to reality. They think if they can just keep repeating something, they can make it true. Now, that works for Trump. Trump Mm -hmm. can keep repeating something and make something that may not be true, true, but that doesn't work historically for Democrats. It just doesn't. So you're looking at two different parties. So just because something works for Trump, just repeating something like an election is stolen or this is happening works for Trump doesn't mean it's the same playbook that Democrats need to use. And I don't understand why they're not realizing that yet. I also think they believe that enough Democrats believe Trump is an existential crisis to democracy, that they'll vote for Biden regardless of how people feel about Biden. I think they feel that the youth vote really hates Trump so much that they would rather vote for Biden or Trump, where that's increasingly not true. The youth vote is starting to split into like a more far left type, you know, scenario where they think Biden is not nearly enough to the left They think Biden's just, you know, similar to a Republican, that there's no real difference between Republicans and Democrats. Trump may be a little bit different than that, but just like the general Republicans and Democrats, Um, and that there's a lot more independent Gen Zers than ever. And there's ones that say simply, I don't want to vote because I don't want to vote for Biden. He didn't keep doing his promises. He's not doing what I want to do. So I'm just not going to vote. And I think that dems are hoping to appeal to this base of dems that they don't realize they're bleeding and i i i don't see how they don't see it this time i can understand in 2016 how they didn't understand it didn't really understand this new landscape cuz trump really did change the game but then in 2020 they won and have this high off of it and think they can use the same kind of playbook just drill you know january 6 drill negative things about trump drill how unhinged he is or how harmful they believe he potentially can be and rally all these Democrats to win. And I don't think that they see that that's not going to work as well for them this time.
0: Do you think it's strange that Trump's uh, daughter, Ivanka, isn't campaigning with him and she and Jared have continued to do interviews where they say they will not return to Washington, D.C. if he's elected? Uh, I think it's a little interesting.
1: I definitely think it's interesting. I agree. I'm not sure if it's because... It's it's personal. Like she wants to separate her personal dealings with what she's doing. I'm not sure if it's because she knows she needs to separate her and Jared's business dealings from anything that's been going on with him. I mean, there's so many lawsuits against him, not just civilly and you know within the government, but also different you know allegations of financial impropriety and taxes and their own business where Ivanka is in the hot seat there. So I think just from an advisory position. If I was advising Ivanka, I would say, Hey, I know it's your father, but you need to separate yourself to protect yourself legally. And I think she also doesn't want to die a social suicide. And I don't mean like on a socialite scene, I mean, as being a person who can go out there because people look her in the face and ask her, do you think this thing is true? Whether it's an election being stolen or whether it's a certain fact he presents, if she's going to go stump for him she's gonna to have to look at them in the eye and say yes and i don't think ivanka believes the same things as ivanka i don't think trump believes all the things that he says out loud and right. i think Ivanka's aware of that so she doesn't want to go out there and repeat these things that she knows aren't true that she knows her father might not even know are true
0: Um, There's uh, one of the topics that our audience is really interested in is this rumor that's going around that Michelle Obama uh, or Gavin Newsom would somehow replace President Biden at the convention this summer. Um, I think it's far fetched, but there's a lot of drumbeats about it. Do you think that's even logical? Do you think Democrats would accept it? Biden's polling is so bad right now. Um, You know,
1: abysmal. Yeah,
0: like horrible. So I don't know you know it's it hasn't happened in like 130 years so it can happen but it's you know there's not a lot of precedent for it
1: All right michelle obama seems extremely far fetched while she's very popular and you know she is educated she's smart she's you know done a lot in her own right i just don't see any of the qualifications or any justification for them subbing her in i know there's a lot more rumors about newsom and i think if they do that they're running into some issues because um On one hand, they get the super ideological left, you know, Gen Zers that are really upset with Biden. They get a young, energized new face. They get someone who's extremely ambitious, has been in politics for a long time, has won a lot of elections, can be charismatic. But then they get all the track record of the disaster of California along Mm -hmm. with that. So that seems a little far fetched unless they have to. But if they have to, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any question that there's something going on with Biden and his, you know, mental decline, whatever that is. I'm not a doctor. I can't say, but it seems to become more increasingly obvious that there's something happening. So I wouldn't be shocked if they tried to do something, but as you said, you know, it it's, it's something that's not normally done. I always thought what they were going to do was have him do the first four years and then have, you know, Kamala Harris kind of come in. and swoop Me too. In. But, yeah. but but it's obvious that they can't do that either because she's polls worse than him, fares worse than him with everything. It just doesn't seem like a possibility. So I don't know what they would do. I understand why those rumors exist. I think Newsom himself has helped fuel some of those rumors just to gauge what the temperature of the room is if those happen. Um, And I don't know how that would do, but um, I don't really know what the Dems are going to do. I mean, look, the Dems could pull something off. Biden could pull something off. Trump can say or do crazier things, um, and Biden could end up winning. This isn't, you know, a done deal. But if the election were today, and if it were Trump versus Biden, I don't know if I see a Biden win.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And it's just a a really wild time. I it's Honestly, I just can't believe I'm doing this again. I can't believe I'm talking to you and other guests about Trump Biden. I mean, it just feels like purgatory. And I do think uh, right before I came on, neither of us really care that much. But Mitch McConnell did announce that he is stepping down as the longest serving Senate leader. And it's been very hard, I think, for all Americans to watch this like decay of our octogenarian class, talking about California, Dianne Feinstein, obviously literally dying on the Senate floor, uh, you know, being wheeled in a wheelchair, not having any kind of cognitive abilities. Um, I, I hope at some point this stranglehold of this generation ends because I think it's really toxic and unhealthy for the country just at large. And at a certain point, they're, all these men are so old, like nature will take its course that they will not be able to physically run for president again. But I really worry it's going to be Trump-Biden, Trump-Biden for the rest of my right. life yeah i know
1: <laughs> we're going to be hearing about this like our children will be voting for either yes. Trump or Biden like right exactly yeah it's um yeah the Mitch McConnell thing it's obviously he's had I mean, he's just freezing up and having obvious problems in front of everyone and he's not in a position like Biden where he is you know the potential you know he's the current president so he can step away more quietly but you know These people are old. These people are people that would be unemployable at – at or considered unemployable at most jobs that are even easy. Like you see them doing jobs as a Walmart greeter or volunteering. um, And very – there's a lot of very high-functioning 80-year-olds, but – But But That wouldn't be the majority of the country and not people with the schedule and the demands that the president or any of these people in high ranking places have. So yeah, I think we need to get a lot of younger people in there. And it doesn't have to be young, inexperienced people. But What's wrong with someone in their 60s? What's wrong with someone in their 50s? What's yeah. wrong with somebody who's closer
0: to 70 than 80? No, I totally agree. And it's sad we even have to say that. Um, I wanted to also talk to you about this Wendy Williams documentary that came out on Lifetime. Um, Wendy Williams was such a powerhouse. I know you were an entertainment reporter for Us Magazine for a long time. She was someone who sort of like dictated pop culture and entertainment culture, lover, hater, and the people really do both. She was a very controversial person. But um this documentary shows her in a state of extreme decline, like we we're just talking about, she has dementia. Uh, she's very angry. she's it's a hard thing to watch. She doesn't know where she is., uh, there's some scenes where she's drunk and passed out and she's vomiting in the other room. Just really horrible stuff uh, i I don't know if you watched it. What do you think of this news about her? and why do you think we're living in a time where people like want like lifetime thinks that we should air footage of someone in this kind of state? the ethics of it just seemed very nebulous to me.
1: I had mixed feelings about that. I think that to see people going through these struggles could possibly be important. You know, I had my whole thing where like after having my child and, um, and going through like the first round of traumatic family court stuff and stuff with her ex, I was like all over the place and screaming about it, and and like mm-hmm. obviously airing my trauma out there into the world. And people were saying, "Well, you shouldn't do that. You should wait until you're healed or until you're calm." But I think that is detrimental because it doesn't show people what trauma really looks like. So in this case, for a lifetime, they're showing what decline really looks like. Mm-hmm. They're showing what conservative conservative ship really looks like when it's kind of dubious you're like why is a random person appointed instead of people in her family um they make the one little thing saying that her son um the reason why she's a conserve in the conservatorship is because there was a hundred thousand dollars in charges to her card but yet show that she threw her son a hundred and twenty thousand dollar birthday party that his gifts and his rent is almost a hundred thousand a month so um that's crazy showing yeah yeah, that is crazy (laughs) just buy a house and that's crazy (laughs) um but just just showing how the just like family court just like anything else people would people also argue about family court people have come to me and saying well why are you reporting on these families this is private this is going to ruin the kids lives this i take a similar take on lifetime Maybe it is exploitation because they're showing, showing someone's decline so publicly. People are saying it's her choice, but then again, can she really choose because she's in such decline? But also it is showing people the reality of a multitude of things, of money and fame and power and how long that could take you and how far it can get you before um, all the yes people start kind of being caught or start being you know, taken away what it can do to you, how long that can prolong someone's issues that they have, whether it's with alcoholism or other substances um, and how much, you know, you can, you know, get away with being on air while you're really sick, um, feel the pressure to keep performing, even though she says she wants to do it. And I believe, I believe her whole life is really wanting to be in front of the cameras. And that's one thing that made me more comfortable with this is that she had said that, you know, since age six, that's all she wanted to do is mm-hmm. talk to people and be on cameras And she has said that through her whole cognizant life. So it seems to me that, um, and especially when they said that she does have moments of clear lucidity, where she does absolutely know where she is and what she wants and goes in and out of those. And she says, I want this during that, that made this seem a little bit less nefarious because I believe that she is one. I don't think everyone would want this. I think in many cases, this could be exploitation, but she's one of those people that I would believe maybe would be embarrassed by some of the footage and when they showed they played back some of her footage that she didn't really remember she seemed embarrassed by it but she seemed to really want to live her life on camera till the end but it is kind of peeling back the curtain on a bunch of different things in our society everything from fame to the conservative conservatorship to media towards the issue we're talking about ourselves you know how much is too much to reveal
0: yeah, I agree with you. I think that um, her spot and culture and pop culture was so strong for so long. I When I worked at The View, she was always on right before and they would they would have it in all the rooms. And the stuff she said, people really paid a lot of attention to. And I think for me, it's just sad to see someone go from this place and then be host a show for 14 years, which is a really long time to host a show and then like have her show basically like removed from her and the last show that Sherry Shepard did for her I had a real problem with because Sherry did the show like hers and then they just did like a short thing at the end talking about Wendy and I feel like it was like really disrespectful to the woman who like made that part and I think it's just sad it's like I don't know, so many women in entertainment were just, like, so disposable, and it just, I don't know, something about it. Maybe no, I, something. I completely
1: agree. No, mm-hmm. I, I really do agree. I agree just to almost, like, sweep it under the carpet, like, she didn't have this incredible mega, media legacy, and have someone else just kind of step in and be like, okay, I'm doing this for her now, and here's, like, almost like her own little in memor- memoriam to her, like, at the end of the Oscars, and, like, bye, and then never really address it, and that could have been because of certain legal issues that, you know, the producers were having. Like, they couldn't say what was going on with Wendy. But they didn't need to just dismiss her and have it like, okay, now she's gone and we're not really giving her the due that she deserves. So I completely agree with you about that.
0: Yeah. Um, you're. Do you prefer to cover entertainment or politics or do you think it's all just one thing now?
1: I think it's all just one thing intertwined. I think that – I think everything – Every aspect of any topic touches everything. So health, politics, culture, social media, tech, entertainment, all those things are now intertwined. They all are inextricable. You can't separate those things, not only because politics has kind of become a form of entertainment and not only because the way we receive our news and information now is through more like social media platforms like Instagram or TikTok or Twitter slash X, but because these things in terms of public policy, in terms of our laws, in terms of legislation, in terms of how it affects us are also all inextricable. Politics and you know, what we learn about what's in our food, what's in our water, what is really going on with healthcare, with different medicine, with um, different ways to heal is also stuff that's legislated. It's also stuff that's highly personal. So the personal is now the political, is now the information, which also now can be the entertainment. So they're all kind of like a Venn diagram if you remember the Venn diagram from school which are those circles that overlap they're all in just this big mass of overlapping circles that sort of closing in to become one big circle.
0: I totally agree with all of that. Um, You know, Jen, I could just talk to you literally for like another hour. But I know we're coming up on your time. Is there anything you want us to be looking out for that you're working on any pieces? Obviously, uh, your work on Catherine Kasanoff is really important. And people can check that out on the New York Post. Um, But is there anything else you want us to be looking out for right now?
1: Sure. Right now I'm working on another story, which I won't get into for the post about another family court case story so people can watch out for that. I would say the best way to track any of the stories I'm doing, I'm also, um, I've immersed myself completely after having my daughter into like healing and health and wellness and trauma and healing modalities. And then, of course, the Venn diagram of how that, you know, affects everything else. So I would just say that if people want to keep up with me, they can go to my Instagram, which is at Jen Hoffman High, H-I, H-I um, or Twitter X, which I use a lot less. And um, hopefully soon, um, I'm in a point right now where I'm trying to decide within this kind of overlapping areas, which areas are the most important to me and which will have the most impact. And they all seem to touch each other. So um, I definitely will be out there, but figuring out exactly how. Like, am I strictly a reporter or am I now somebody exploring more, you know, healing, healthy ways to live?
0: Well, they can you can do both. (laughs) But that's what I think is important. Yeah, yeah. I, I really love your work. I think it's just such an interesting thing. I mean, as you know, they call it in this industry talkers, like someone who can just talk about anything. And um, I really continue to love your political perspective, because I think it's really fair. Uh, So I would really love it if you came back on our little podcast. Uh, whenever you have time, especially as the election is sort of ramping up. And whenever your new pieces come out or you just want to talk about anything, please let us know because it's just a pleasure speaking to you.
1: Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy that you had me on and I appreciate the time. And I love that you're back at it podcasting it out there again. (laughs) I love that you'll give the takes that other people won't. So I appreciate (laughs) you too. And thanks for having me on.
0: Speaking of trauma, it took me a while to want to get back in front of a microphone too. Because, you know, as we all know, women, I think especially motherhood kind of like rips you apart and builds you back up uh, in different ways. And it's certainly challenging. So Uh, Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. And like I said, please come back soon. And you can follow her on Instagram at Jen Hoffman HI. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat. I am so excited for my guest who's in studio. I love anyone who comes in studio. Uh Tim Carney is a fellow at AEI. We have lots of AEI fellows that come on the show, which is great. A columnist at the Washington Examiner and author of his new book, Family Unfriendly, How Our Culture Made Raising Kids Much Harder Than It Needs to Be. Um, I've been following your work forever. I read your last book that came out in 2019. um, But you messaged me and sent me this book because I inspired some part of it. Can
2: you just (laughs) explain why? (laughs) Um, Well, you did one day come up to me and say... I want to have children, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I'm ready for it. Yeah, so that was this. Mo- I'm such
0: a cliche with this, by the way. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and I think you came up to me because you knew my wife and I at that point had four or five kids, and now we have six. Um, but that idea of being terrified of becoming a parent—it's—it's uh, it's universal, and. I some, it's, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, well, people who don't want to become parents, it's just because they don't like children or because they're ideologically opposed to it. But our conversation was you you saw it as being this great potential calling, but also something that was incredibly daunting, which was not the way I ever thought of parenting or my wife. We both came from massive families. My wife is the fourth of eight children. I'm the fourth of four. We were all super close. And so part of it was just seeing, OK, the birth rate is falling now in the United States, it's really low. So maybe that idea of being terrified of having children really has spread throughout the culture. And maybe it's rational, maybe it's irrational. What's behind it? So those are the questions that I asked. And and the the title comes from the fact that I said, we actually do have a family unfriendly culture. But I've helped find, I've identified in the book a handful of sort of family friendly subcultures. And that I thought that that was an important story to tell.
0: I don't want to make this about me, but I do feel like I hit a lot of cliches in the like (laughs) sex in the city generation where everything coming from culture was like, if you have kids, it's disgusting. It'll ruin your career. You'll never have fun again. And I, for a long time, lived in New York City. I worked in media. I still work in media. And I had people straight up say, your career will be over. You'll become irrelevant. You cannot keep up the pace of your life working in daily TV, which I did for like almost nine years straight, um, you um, everything will come to a close. So I was really scared. And then when I found out I was pregnant with my first daughter, I, I am going to say this, like it was not overly happy news for everyone I worked with. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I think there was this feeling, especially because I was going to be on maternity leave during the election, that I was like hurting myself and hurting the show. And like it just was not, it, I didn't feel, and then when I had a baby, um I went, and I've talked about this publicly, when I went back, I was treated so badly and like literally had this whole incident where I like I'm not I mean I like had a like really horrible experience on air where I was told like we didn't miss you when you were on maternity leave and it played into all my insecurities that like oh my God being on maternity leave has ruined my career. And, like, that's my experience. So I'm sure when you're talking about family unfriendly environments, I think media is probably one of the worst ones. Yes. Well, disagree? So, um,
2: certainly. But, I mean, I've mostly worked at conservative outlets. My yeah. employer for the last 15 years. Uh, liberal media. <clears throat> my employer for the last 15 years is the Washington Examiner, where one of my old editors, Steve Smith, said to me one day, said to him, whatever success you'll have in your career, it will not compare to the, the joy and the meaning you will find in raising a child. To, and for – even though I was always pro-family, to have my boss tell me that, like just sit down in my office one day and tell me that almost out of nowhere was so uh, affirming, so uh, encouraging. And again, then we went ahead and had I think babies number five and six <laughs> after that conversation. But absolutely – and so part of the problem – is what I call family unfriendly feminism. Now, that's not that all feminism is family unfriendly, obviously. And I, but the way Richard Reeves, a, a really good Brookings scholar, has put it, he said, "What we're doing, especially in elite culture, you know, New York media, law firms, even to some extent academia, is we're trying to make instead of making family friendly workplaces, we're making work friendly families." Which mm-hmm. means you only have one kid. You don't have it until you're 35. You make sure that you. Uh, the only option is the two-income, full-time work, uh, and then institutional daycare. Certainly not relying on in-laws or anything like that. That's you know that's imposing too much on them. But that there's one model of what you should go through. It's what it is. Is it's just elevating work to the place where family or faith should be. And so workism is is one of the real enemies here.
0: Do you think Americans are particularly bad at this?
2: So at workism, yes, we are one of the countries that elevates work to the place, again, where faith or family should be. And you get a little bit of that in northern Europe. You get a lot of it in Asia. Lots of places have low and falling birth rates. But in America, we do have, you know, we talk about the work ethic in America. And as we've become more secular we've combined sort of a a positive work ethic, but then we've ramped it up and we've said, we're going to get our personal meaning just from work. And it's easy for people like you or me who this is, I mean, I wrote a book about family because that's what I care about, where our work is tied up with our meaning. Uh, It's easy for us to forget. But then I think a lot of other people think, well, my job, my law firm, becoming partner, that's really where I'm going to derive my meaning as an individual. So I do think Americans are worse as far as making work into a religion and having it replace faith and family.
0: Joy Reid recently made news like <laughs> yesterday, the day before, I mean, you're laughing, like basically just hysterically ranting why do we need any more children, talking about the border, a <clears throat> common talking point among Democrats. And I have actually heard like, in in like production rooms is that we shouldn't have any more kids because of climate change. Yes. When did this become like such a talking point that seems really irrational to me? It's
2: it's out of control. So the the talking point on on climate change has two sides to it. One is to quote Miley Cyrus: "We're getting handed a piece of crap planet." And I'm not going to have children unless I believe that there will still be fish in the water. That's That's, what she said? That's what she said, yes. makes me sad. And so that idea that the the sort of the planet is not fit for humans is the first half of it. But that's sort of a a cover story, I think, for the second half, which is, well, a human being, a new human being, will further destroy the planet. Every child is whatever, 50 million tons of carbon dioxide. And – that idea that we're actually bad, <laughs> that we are the cancer of the earth, as one uh, single or married but child-free by choice woman told me, Amanda was her name, and I quoted her. She said, we, do I think humans are good? No, we are the cancer of the earth, and that's tied up with the climate stuff. Now, that's been going on for years, but I actually think climate is just its a, a totem. It's one example. It's an easy-to-grasp uh, way of saying, I actually think people are bad. I actually Mm -hmm. and so, you know, Americans were inherently racist, were oppressive, were settler colonialists or whatever. That human beings are bad, I think, is a huge part behind this. And so the last chapter in Family Unfriendly is exactly about that. I call it civilizational sadness. And it's what connects the dots from the low birth rate in Europe to the low birth rate here to the low birth rate in Asia is this common belief that we're just not good.
0: Mhm, well, can I ask you about you know you talk about millennials and zears. I'm an older millennial i 'm thirty nine avoiding parenthood and um you know people bra- blame the economy they're like my parents could buy a house with like you know eighteen thousand dollars, and mm-hmm. now boomers suck and i've heard every excuse under the sun. And I, I only proselytize, proselytize, excuse me, having children because I feel like I was fed a lot of bullshit when it came to motherhood and having kids that was really hard for me. When I found out I was pregnant with my uh, daughter now, Liberty, um, I was not, I was scared. Mm-hmm. I was not excited. I was not happy. I was scared. Yeah. And thank God for my husband who is, um, on, he's very conservative and always want to have kids. Um, he really like helped usher him and my doctor really helped like usher me through the experience. But, that really it's normal to be scary because like giving birth is scary. But oh, yeah. I sh- i feel like so I was fed so much misinformation and ugliness and lies about motherhood. And my experience has been the total opposite.
2: Yeah. So part of it. I mean, you had mentioned the economics. Economics has always played a role in whether somebody thinks they can have a family or can have a, a more kids. And I think that what's happened now is people have come under the belief that they – either that things are uniquely bad right now and I show the numbers in the book that millennials are not in fact poorer than my generation, Gen X. They'll probably be richer throughout their 30s than the baby boomers uh, were. And so it really is a cultural issue. Now, in the last few years, housing prices going crazy has hurt but the baby bust started – in the recession and it kept going. We still had a low birth rate in 2019 before housing prices went crazy when the economy was great. So the economic explanation doesn't explain why things have fallen where they have, why the attitudes towards parenting are, as, are what you talk about and it really is a fear. And so part of it I put at the idea that it's a, uh, the illusion of control is what I call it, that we think we can make our lives, we can write a script that our life is going to follow and then we think a child is unpredictable. It's going to yeah. blow up the script. Now, the fact is a child is unpredictable and is going to change the trajectory of your, your life. The error is believing that we ever had the ability to totally. write our life script. And having a child is, is in some ways liberating because it makes you think like – well now now I'm free from that idea that I can predict and plan every step of my life so that planning illusion that illusion of control and that's part of why parents that are out there now are so many of them are total helicopters Because they think, A, there's a kidnapper around every corner, which just isn't true, but B, that they can protect their child from anything bad happening to them, which is totally false. I
0: thought that part of your book was really interesting that you think that, like, we're just too helicoptery. because I actually found just in my experience with, like, some things with, like, you know, my daughter's playgroups and whatever, like, I'm a lot more mellow mom. I think it's like I'm just not – I don't know. I think it's okay for them to fall down a little bit, <laughs> like get dirty. Like, I don't want my kid hurt or anything like that. But like, you know, I'm just not. I'm not precious myself, so I don't think I'm like as precious with my kids. Um, what do you? Why do you think we're so obsessed with trying to keep them in like these sort of like Saran wrap bubbles?
2: Well, so there's. I think again, it, there's a whole societal psychiatry or a spirit of the age that is. Um, this is really unfortunate term that economists use for wealthier countries having fewer children, and they say it's about quality over quantity in parenthood, which is to that say people like yeah. me who have a high quantity of kids are obviously doing low quality. But the, what they mean by quality is more investment of time and money per kid, which in a lot of ways is good, but not if it means making sure that little Connor never stubs his toe, mm-hmm. but that idea that – okay. I waited until I was ready to have kids, and now I'm going to give my kid the perfect life, and I'm going to play Mozart for her when she's in the womb, yes. et cetera. I don't know if people still do that. They did that when, in 2006 when my wife and I had our first. So I sang them Irish rebel songs instead. <laughs> but the uh, but that idea that we can protect our kids from every problem and that we have to protect them from every problem, that comes with that that weird planner mindset, and it's it's sort of a rejection of nature that kids have survived – for forever and that right now kids are safer than they've ever been and it's not because mom and dad are helicoptering. It's because we have modern medicine, because we have modern diet, all, all of this stuff and that a broken bone isn't the end of the world. And I also talked just about the achievement culture, that your kid doesn't need to get into Harvard. Your kid doesn't need to get straight. Well, I wouldn't send my kid to Harvard now.
0: <laughs> you anyway. Should, you shouldn't
2: <laughs> worry if they're a little bit behind on, on reading. Not to say you shouldn't pay attention to actual sort of learning difficulties, but all of that, you know, no sub toes, no missing benchmarks, is this idea that we can craft our children into being this perfect thing. And it doesn't work.
0: You having six kids, six is a lot, right? I mean, yes. I think by anyone's standard, it's wonderful. Um, I started having kids late and I have very hard births, like it just no way I could like physically have six yeah. kids. Um, my husband and I are trying to figure out if we can have three, I'm 39, you know, whatever. Um, Six kids is a big car. And just, like, the (laughs) semantics of, like, you know, we, like, go to church and bring our daughters to, like, Chili's afterward on Sundays, like... It is a whole thing, getting them just in and out of the car, in and out of the car seat, bringing, like, the snacks and whatever. How do you physically do it with six kids? And I say that, like, in awe. (laughs) And then what do you say to people who want to have a lot of kids but have the same kind of questions I do of just, like, how do you do it? Given that there is – I have found a lot of stereotypes to be true, not necessarily – my in-laws are wonderful. But friends of mine, boomers aren't as interested in grandparenting Mm -hmm. as, like, the generation beforehand.
2: Well, and so you're touching on a a real issue there that actually – having in-laws that do help watch your kids is incredibly important. And, one and of the, mine are amazing. <laughs> I don't have anything. One of the things that I uh, if you look at the end of Family Unfriendly you'll see I think 400, 500 end notes because I look at all these studies including ones that say having grandma help out makes it more likely that you will have the next child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I would hope any Baby Boomer listeners out there are saying, okay, you know what? I will watch my, my grandkids. But in response to the question of how do you do it, my answer is, well, often we just don't. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. We we do make sure they go to mass every Sunday. We're Catholics. We feel you know that, yeah. that's absolutely an obligation. Um, when they're really little, though, you know sometimes we do what I call the divide and conquer. We take turns, and if it's too much to try to you know do what I call mass training, we don't. Um, we we've never all flown together our our family vacations are often driving somewhere and camping that's what we do too and, th- and driving and camping like camping out the kids love that mm-hmm. i think the if i if i look at the the price of the vacations the less i spent on it the more they remember it years later mm-hmm. and also we don't do travel sports we accidentally did once because and um, how
0: do you opt out of that? Because it sounds awful.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I'll just say the one time the one time we fell into the what I call the travel team trap was because I thought my son would get cut. So I let him try out. OK, <laughs> and he's he's never I've never told him that. So one of these uh, shows he's going to listen to and he's going to learn that. But he, I think he would know that. So I let him try out. He makes it. It was a total mistake the Mm -hmm. first day they do winter workouts this kid's 12 you shouldn't be doing baseball in january indoors when you're 12 and the coach says to them baseball isn't fun winning baseball is fun (laughs) that's not
0: nice (laughs) no, no
2: and it's just a horrible attitude and they they lost they didn't have fun until near the end of the season when they just said we're gonna start having fun and then they actually started winning one or two games but the point is we just, I just had to tell my son and he wasn't pleased about this. says, no, we're not going to hire you a pitching coach. Mm-hmm. No, you're going to play regular Little League, regular recreation ball. Um, I'll buy you one of those bounce back screens. Guess what? I gave you two younger brothers. You can play baseball with them. Yes. And anytime you want to just go play pickup with your buddies, you can go do it. And I am an, i love baseball enough that I'll like, I'll go and I'll throw him batting practice just because I love doing it. But just that of set them free. You can do this all you want on your free time and uh, all summer long, etc. And yeah, we'll put you in the Little League team. We'll let you play on the school team, but we're not doing travel sports. I call it the travel team trap, though, because a lot of parents just feel, oh, my son's going to fall behind. Or what's horrible, and this is why it's a family unfriendly culture, is some Little Leagues are drying up because all the good pitchers, any 12-year-old who can throw the ball over the plate is playing travel ball. If you've ever watched 12-year-olds who can't throw strikes play baseball. It's one of the most miserable experiences in your life. And so it really does create this kind of catch-22. And uh, I I do say I have a section in there called How to Escape the Trap. And sometimes that involved me creating my own team in a rec league and just saying, we're not going to have practice. (laughs) We're we're just going to play the games. Mm -hmm. We'll have a preseason practice, and otherwise we're just playing the games. And How parents, parents lined up for that. Now, I had some who said, well, no, that's not what I want. I want, you know, professional instruction for my kids. But, the, you know, we definitely filled up the team. Mm-hmm. So there are some parents who really believe in that. Uh, what, they, what they would call high-quality parenting, I think it's a mistake. And I think mm-hmm. it's part of why parents are going crazy. And it is why kids are more anxious today.
0: Because... People want like the best of whatever all the time and all the tutors and all the whatever. Yeah, it's funny because I have a, I don't know if it's because I'm, fr- I'm, you know, I live in the DC area like you do. Um, but I'm from Arizona and I was raised in Phoenix and Sedona and like playing outside a lot. And my attitude, I really do find my attitude towards parenting very different than the culture here mm-hmm. as a stereotype. Yeah. In the sense that I'm like, same thing. I'm like, they're going to win and they're going to lose. Like, she's, like my girls are going to, like, fail and they're going to yeah. succeed. Like, life is all about all of these things. And I have even found, like, at a young age, like, the culture here about schools and prep schools and, like, getting them into this kindergarten before they can go to this school and... I mean, not to be gross, but I'm like, how much anti-Semitism is happening in some of these prep schools? Like, how many drugs are the kids doing? Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of culture are at these places? So, and it, the elitism of this, I actually, like, have kind of really rejected. Like, I don't know. I mean, not to be shady,
2: but, like, I don't want my kids to be around a bunch of snobs that... Well, and it's bad for them. There's a shocking statistic that I didn't know until I was writing this book that wealthier high school kids are more likely to use drugs and to... Be just anxious money? and depressed, and it's not just because of money. It's it's related to their anxiety and their depression. Because if if your kids go to and a lot of the one study just looked at public schools and where we live, you know, Northern Virginia. There's Langley High School, which is basically a private school. You have to like own a, a three million dollar yeah. house to live in that school district. These are the sort of schools that produce high anxiety kids because once you're there. They're thinking, okay, are you going to an Ivy or are you just going to go to Swarthmore or something like that? And that pressure on kids where it's not learn for the sake of learning But it's you have to take this AP course. You have to do this where everything is for the sake of the next achievement that produces more stressed out kids.
0: That makes me want to hurl myself off a cliff talking (laughs) about like if they don't go to an Ivy League school, if they don't whatever, if they don't whatever. And um, I think one of the best parts about this moment is that there is such a revisioning of what higher education is going to be. Um, I wanted to ask you have you heard of what a trad wife is <laughs> yes, okay definitely. so it's very popular on social media right now it's sort of these there's like a woman on uh, TikTok and Instagram called Ballerina Farm yes and Ballerina she Farm, has,
2: Farm is in in the book so yeah okay so I'm
0: fascinated by her there's another woman who's a model married to another model and she just went viral <laughs> for um, making cereal from scratch did
2: she also and do then, the, um, the grilled cheese sandwich yes, yes but she's uh, like
0: making her own cheese and whatever yes. so I think there's lots of toxic messaging including from trad wife the yes. idea of making cereal from scratch, Tim, <laughs> like I I would rather like eat glass. Like I can't even tell you. But it's funny because I think both things are toxic. No
2: yes. offense to Ballerina Farm, I know it's popular. And so uh, what is it called? Ballerina Farm. I'm trying to look it up here mm-hmm. in, my, uh, in my index. But so they – I talk about both the momfluencers mm-hmm. who put up this image of perfection, which is especially – dangerous because they try to make it look low effort yes let uh, see the, the affect ballerina
0: farms married to her husband started jet blue
2: yes <laughs> the like. a, the affect of ease and it's the reason meaning they make it look super easy but it, so the picture is them posing out on the front porch and the boys are wearing their socks and they're in jeans. And then you just realize, wait, no, the hues of like the jeans to the denim dress all is intentionally building up to her blue eyes. And oh, well, the fact that they're exposed, you it's know, really floor produced. joists in the house makes it look, uh, oh, well, we don't, we're just really basic and simple here. And there was a couple things that I realized about this. One, this one woman wrote about the, the mom fluencers and said, there are never neighbors in these pictures. Yeah. The, nobody, nobody cares for six kids or eight – I don't know how many she has – without family, in-laws, neighbors, or at babysitters. least a, a babysitters, nannies, that sort of thing. But they do it all for themselves because they all have to fit perfectly into the into the world. But just as harmful is the opposite, which is uh, the – Uh, being a mom as hell yes the hysterically
0: (laughs) crying on tiktok this is the worst thing i've ever
2: done why isn't there a middle ground well so you know who does the middle ground dads yeah (laughs) you you see dads who like if i i sometimes post a picture on twitter i'm not gonna do like instagram or whatever but i once gave my seven-year-old my phone and was like just film me playing basketball against sean sean is nine and so i it was all for me to set up just me blocking like stuffing Sean (laughs) right back into his face to the point that he's like falling to the ground and I can't physically dunk but you know uh, almost like dunking on him and doing all that as because it's fun Mm -hmm. that dads love having fun with their kids and this is another part of um, so the the trad wives are sending this message of like well domesticity good people should care about their home being a stay-at-home mom is a an amazing calling But come on, like just do grilled cheese in the toaster. Making cereal from (laughs) scratch.
0: And also, that would take like six hours. It does, it takes like a million hours. And I think what's like, for me, what's hard, because I have, you know, I like want everyone to, you know, have families and have kids if they feel like they're capable of it. Um, But when you see stuff like that again, it's like, hair I know what hair and makeup I get hair and makeup all the time. Yeah. That took 2 hours of you getting hair and makeup. Yep. You have a she, she always has like silk clothes on and I don't know if you can't make things with silk like none of it's realistic at all and I find it fascinating because so many people are so like obsessed with it. But again, I think all is toxic. I think the woman hysterically saying that having a kid is the worst thing ever and I'm depressed all the time and then that is also toxic. Is it women that are the problem here? Um,
2: so I think – so women are more likely – the the psychological studies I, I read while writing this – women are more likely to engage in what's called social comparison. To, and they are more likely than men if they look at somebody at like a happy Instagram posts, they're more likely to be made sad by it. Now, okay. and so that's, you know, and I remember having a little bit of those feelings myself. So, this one guy I followed, and he'd always have his dog and his kids running around on the beach. And I was like, I, I don't do that. Maybe I should take my dogs and my kids out to the wilderness and run around. And I just realized that seeing his happy posts were making me feel inadequate. It's like, I was just playing basketball with my son. I'm not a bad dad, but I felt, and women are more likely to, uh, just, you know, compare themselves to other women. I started paying attention to this in D.C., watching women check out the outfits of every woman who walks by them in downtown D.C., and it's this comparison thing. And so mothers are more likely to sort of either try to make themselves seem perfect or to try to to punish themselves for not being perfect. So this is one reason that I think dads being more dadly is that's my family-friendly feminism, if a dad thinks, OK, I don't – I'm just going to work and pay the bills and have no responsibility for raising the kids, that's that's a failure on a 100 different ways. And so – but also this doesn't mean dads have to be more like women, more mm-hmm. feminine. Certainly not um, – I, I again, stuffing my son in basketball, that's not something my wife is interested in. She, she rolls her eyes when I do it. But so holding up an example of masculinity that is being a dad – spending time with your kids that's absolutely necessary and that's something that some on sort of the manosphere reject and Donald Trump once said oh you know if you see a guy pushing a stroller that's pathetic though that needs to be rejected but also just sometimes sociologists are like well men need to be more involved in the uh, in the caregiving economy it's like don't say caregiving economy. That doesn't sound fun. Yeah. Playing all. playing with your kids and feeding them breakfast, that is fun.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of conversations right now about fertility in general. The rise in surrogacy for mm-hmm. um, you know, to heterosexual couples as well has exploded. Um, it's not something that I'd be comfortable doing. Um, I'm jealous of like, I'm like a passionate, jealous person. The idea of someone carrying my child, I just think it would be too weird for me. Um, do you think any of that also feeds into family and friendly? And again, no yeah. judgment about, against people who do surrogacy, but, That is something that has been presented to me even when I was like 34. They were like, just get a surrogate. You'll get a surrogate. And I wish no one had ever said that to me because it also puts in myths about fertility
2: timelines, which are very real and something women really need to pay attention to. So the first thing is that it absolutely does fit into that that planner mindset, that idea that we can just sort of using modern medicine, go ahead and and plan our lives and conquer biology. And so – that and that's also yeah so that's one of the things that I, I look at when I when I see some of the reproductive technology rising up through the culture is again this idea that, okay, well, what we've finally done is outgrown our biology. And it's unfair that the you know, that women have to bear more of the burden of parenting than men do, because women are the only ones who can get pregnant and breastfeed, etc. It, it might be unfair, but it's the way the world is. And so we want to conquer that both out of this idea, this sort of hyper uh, gender symmetry, and then but also the idea that we can perfectly plan our life. We freeze your eggs, wait till you're age 38, do the surrogate, do that after you've gotten these you know, benchmarks in your career. So I do think that is part of the broader culture of uh of that. One thing I looked at a little bit but didn't get uh, time to study a lot that somebody should study is I don't know that the school system is informing women about mm-hmm. the timing of this. They're certainly not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me that women are, are caught off guard. And I think it was especially true for people slightly older than you and me, like people who are now in their late 40s, sort of mid-Gen Xers. They were the ones who I heard the most surprise from of I didn't realize that I was giving up the possibility of other ever being a mom when I did this.
0: Yeah. And I think um, one of some of the best advice I ever got was from a woman named Margaret Hoover that you may or may not know who told me when I was 33, that you have to take your career as seriously as you take your fertility. And you're and she told me you're not doing that. Like Mm -hmm. you're not at all taking – and I thank her all the time on this show and publicly because I think it's it's really some of the most sound advice I've ever been given because I never thought about it before. And I was like, but what about until you're 40? And she's like, it's lies. You've got to pay attention to some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard thing. And again, I don't make the laws of nature and the laws of the universe, but it is just – like the way it is, um, Americans say the ideal number of children is two point seven, but American women are le- averaging less than one point seven. Yep. that's very that's not a lot. I mean, it's like one, one and a half. Um, I mean, you know, one and a half doesn't yes. isn't a child. But um, why why is that? Like, why is well, the ideal that? And all- I
2: think it's important to remind that because some of the fall in the birth rate is due to more people saying I don't want children, but more of it is due to a, a huge part of it, at least one whole child, is people either starting late and then not being blessed with having as many as they want. But a, a huge part of it is just people looking around and saying the circumstances are not optimal. And what I try to argue in the book is that some of that is true and it's – we need to change it. We need to change a culture. We need to have more neighborhoods where you can just let your kids run around. We need to have it – we need to build more housing and, and that sort of thing. And some of it though is imaginary and it's unfounded fear kidnappers, the climates of the planets about to catch on fire, uh, et cetera. So that that shortfall from 2.7 to 1.7, that's what I call the failure of our culture. I mean I would want people to have an ideal bigger than 2.7, but that's that's a whole different fight. If people are – if a lot of people who want three kids are ending up with one, a lot of people who want two kids are ending up with zero, what we're seeing is that we have – we're not a a family-friendly habitat anymore. And that really is a failure, and it's a failure on all sorts of – the parenting culture we were talking about earlier, travel team trap, the helicopter parenting, but also just our, our culture's values. It used to be sort of normal. You became a grown up, You get married. You have kids. Now that it's, this, it's an exquisite choice, it's all intentional, it's, it's – if, if you're into that kind of thing, once that happened, it then became entirely your problem. I quote this great writer, Stephanie Murray. She's not a conservative, but her writing on parenting in the Atlantic is great. And she says, once it became a personal choice, it became a personal problem. Have as many kids as you want. Just don't bother the rest of us with them. And this is something I think conservatives need to come to terms with, too, is actually, no, helping other people raise their kids is in fact part of what society is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. The tribes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is our duty. It's one of the main reasons tribes happened. It wasn't just to hunt so the adults could eat, but it was to uh, free up labor to help people care for their kids and in the book, I go and I go to uh, Amish communities or I go to Mormon communities in uh, Idaho and Utah. I talk about my own family. We live in these big Catholic circles, social circles, and it's perfectly normal to let your kids run around. And if if you see a kid acting up, you have the sort of delegated authority to call them out, even discipline them if the parents aren't around. That tribal support of raising kids is absolutely – still present in some subcultures in the U.S. It's still present in Israel. I dedicate a whole chapter to Israel. But it's not the norm in uh, American culture.
0: Who do you think is doing it right Mm -hmm. culturally? I always think of like, you know, Hispanic people having more children Mm -hmm. than white people. Um, And is there any uh, what solution would you give to just like Anyone listening to this right now who is like, "Wow, I want to have kids, I don't want to be yeah. you know brainwashed by so much Like what do you think the solution is? To?
2: So the, the, the main solution is embedding yourself in a community that is pro family and that will support you in raising kids. And so that might be hard to do if you want to live on Capitol Hill um, and you can't afford it but the uh, live close to grandma um, mm-hmm. set, uh, make sure that we're I, I joke that I think chapter two subtitles have lower ambitions for your kids. That's a joke because my ambitions for my kids are astronomical, that they're going to be saints. That's that's what I want of them. But Ivy League is not part of it, even before the, the recent mm-hmm. ways in which the Ivy League shamed itself. Um, Division one sports is not part of it. So realize you only have so much control. You don't have to do all the things that people think you do have to do as a parent. You don't have to make sure your kid's face is always clean um and but know that you're going to rely on community and rely on family. So the best place to raise kids is in a place where you can let your kids run around, where there are other people engaged in it, slightly older kids who can babysit. Um and that's that's the main advice I would give give people is you don't you only have so much control over how your kids are going to end up. What you can give them is a loving family and a fun childhood. And you'll find that that does all of the work for uh, having your kids really attain what what you would want them to attain.
0: Um, Any culture that's doing it the right way?
2: So, oh yeah, that was your original question. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of things that the LDS, the Mormon culture does, right? Which is, again, just accommodate the heck out of families. That if you're, I spoke to this woman who was a professor and she was like, the orientation they told us, put your family first. If you have to take a, you know, time off for maternity leave do that your husband should probably take time off for paternity leave with baby number two so they drive home to men that men need to be dads they their workplaces are very family friendly they they're very open to homeschooling so for a lot of parents not us we love our, our catholic schools but for a lot of parents homeschooling is a way to have mm-hmm. a ton of kids Israel is a country that really stands out. If you look at a, at all the wealthy countries in the world, they range from like 0.7 babies in South Korea up to about uh, 2.1 in Mexico, and then they jump way up to 3.0 in Israel.
0: Well, people in Israel have like a lot of children. Right? So there's
2: there are some people who have nine, like a lot of very religious- uh, Like more the, Hasidic. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the- the secular Jews in Israel average 2.0. Remember, the U.S. is 1.7, Europe's 1.5. So these are people who will eat a bacon sandwich and their religious observance is just when they have to go to mom's sure. house for, for the Sabbath for the Seder. But they um, but they still have many more kids than Europeans. And I argue that's why we have to look at culture. That's why culture is in the subtitle of the book, is because the religious center there as as well as the – I use the image of a garden. Religion is a big tree in the middle. God's first commandment was be fruitful and multiply. The other trees that create this garden are Israel's geopolitical situation, the threats that they are constantly facing, the Jewish people's history, the threats of extinction that they are constantly facing. But even people who don't eat of those trees live in this environment that's now, because of them, super family friendly. One guy said, the bus drivers in Israel love little kids, and they're That's always nice. looking out for them. Yeah. You let your kids walk places. Grandma is much more likely to live within 20 minutes, and it's sort of expected that grandma is going to help you watch your kids. You go to a restaurant, unless it's the fanciest restaurant at 8 o'clock on a Saturday, you're going to expect there's going to be kids almost anywhere, and nobody's going to frown on you. Nobody who boards <laughs> boards a flight on an Israeli airline with their baby thinks they have to bring on one of those Ziploc bags of, of bribes to give yeah, the yeah. parents who are sitting nearby. It makes me
0: sad when people do it, that. It, it
2: absolutely does. And so Israel is the nation that their education level is high, their income is high. So – but unlike the other highly educated wealthy countries, they're having a bunch of babies because they put it as – it's a normal thing. You're going to get married. You're going to have kids. Not everybody's going to do it. But that's what we expect and we are going to help you with it.
0: Um, I've been very anti-Cruise in my life. I don't like cruises in general. <laughs> Until recently, a friend of mine who's very chic went on a Disney I cruise. I thought you were talking
2: about Tom Cruise at first. But oh, no. I love Tom Cruise. Um,
0: went on a Disney cruise and she was like, what they do to help children on these – Fucking cruises and yes. like what they do. And I'm like, it's really sad for me that I'm like, because I've been trying to find a place we can go on vacation because I want to take my daughter on her first flight that's family friendly. And that's the only thing we can kind of come up with. And how sad is that yeah, for the United States that it's like, can you find a hotel that's not going to have people like just repulsed by children being in it?
2: Isn't that you, sad? They need to welcome children. They need to realize, you know, children are going to be a little loud and make a mess. But the other part of it, and my wife and I really started thinking about it when our youngest was six, was. Where can we take our children and ignore them? Yes. (laughs) And this Uh is a huge part of it. Children need independence. They need to be running around. Now, a cruise ship um, is not necessarily the independence from all adult sort of independence because on those Disney cruises, they have a ton of activities for them. But it is the independence of – mom and dad get to sit by the pool yes, that's with, what my friend said. with a beer or, <laughs> or a margarita or whatever yeah. while the kids are entertained. And so my wife and I, we did a, a vacation in this little island off the coast of Maine because there are no cars. And oh. the, our six-year-old, if she wanted to swim, I had to be there with her. Otherwise, she just had to be with her older siblings because nothing bad was going yeah, to happen yeah. to them unless they were like venturing out into the surf or anything. But so yeah, you just make sure you guys all have to stay with the six-year-old. Otherwise, you're set free. That was their most fun vacation because what children need is independence. They, they there was only so many places they could go, but the hiking trails had forks, so they were making up their mind which fork to take. They might get lost a little bit, but nothing bad was going to happen. And getting lost was exciting to them.
0: What do you want people to take away from your new book, which isn't out when this comes out, but it's coming out March 12th. Is that
2: correct? No, uh, March 19th. March 19th. Is, and um, and
0: then once again, Family Unfriendly, How Our Culture Made Raising Kids Much Harder Than It Needs to Be. That's the title. Yes. It's a wonderful book. I read almost all of it, and oh. it's really good. Well, thank you. Some uh, of the data is really jarring, though.
2: Yes. I have um, to say. So... <laughs> The main thing I talked earlier about the civilizational sadness, this belief that we're not good, that either you know we need to achieve something in order to make our lives worthwhile, or that we're burning the planet. I, I the main things I want people to realize that's a lie. To the degree that our culture is family unfriendly, the best way to turn it around is to have more kids and to make them be more normal. To the degree that you feel like you've messed up or you failed in life having children is the best inspiration to turning yourself around as I'm sure you know and uh, all the things I talk about sidewalks, youth sports parenting should be easier than it is but let's be honest it's the hardest thing you're ever going to do if you do it but it's the easiest path to your destination in life if your destination in life is noble enough if you want to be a man or woman of virtue the easiest way to do it is to be a parent. It's mm-hmm. not the only way to do it. But, the you know, the, the Bible says feed the hungry, clothe the naked. We wake up. There are hungry, naked people in our house. Yeah. <laughs> They're right <laughs> there waiting for us. So, like, giving love and all of that. So, to the degree that you feel bad about humanity or, or yourself, the best way to turn that around is having children and loving them. There are policy changes. There are things, you know. Theoretically, we could talk about child tax credits. All of that is in the book. But the more important thing is if you set your goal high enough in life, somebody who's a man or woman of virtue who who loves unconditionally, parenthood is the easiest path to that.
0: I wish someone had told me that all the stuff everyone's saying you're going to hate, you're going to love because I remember being like – But I'm going to have to, like, bathe them every night, and I can't go out (laughs) to dinner. And now I look forward to bathing my daughters every night and, like, helping them get ready for bed and reading stories and prayers and all that stuff. It's, like, my favorite time of day. So I wish someone had told me, because everything – I just see this, like – image of like Samantha Jones being like kids are disgusting oh I'm gonna like (laughs) party in Manhattan forever like you know and that was really a message that was like really sent to my age group for a really long time and it's all such bullshit and I if I had a little time machine I wish I could change it but I can't Um, but I'm glad that they're like people like you and books like this being written right now. And I do think these younger Zers are smarter about this than the millennials were. I will say I do think like they're much more acutely aware of like
2: – That's good news. That's, that's true. Yeah. yeah.
0: Fertility timelines, especially in conservative circles, kids are having – people are having kids much younger mm-hmm. in a good way. Like not yeah. not waiting for like the mythical stars to align for it to yes. be the right moment. Absolutely. Tim, thank you so much. Um, You're amazing on Twitter. You can follow him on Tim Carney. And again, please pick up his book, Family and Friendly, How Our Culture Made Raising Kids. Much harder than it needs to be. It's a really wonderful read and really important. And uh, thank you for your
2: time today. Coming in studio and everything. Uh, Yes, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to Megan McCain has entered the chat today. We will be back again, same time, same place, uh, next Tuesday. And I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening to this episode of Megan McCain has entered the chat brought to you by Teton Ridge. I am your host and executive producer Megan McCain. Additional executive producers are Miranda Wilkins, Eric Spiegelman, and Wynne Weigel. Our supervising producer is Olivia DeCopolis. Our senior guest producer is Kara Kaplan and associate producer Austin Goodman.